I'm currently 30 weeks pregnant with my first baby, and my doctors told me at my first appointment that I have a bicornuate uterus, which at first they said was not severe. And I don't want to be in a hospital setting where interventions are going to be pushed. So what's the choice now? An at-home free birth? because no midwife can legally attend the home birth because in past 42 weeks. Just when, when laws are put in place that limit our options when it comes to our bodies and our births, that has nothing to do with women being able to take total responsibility for their births and make their own decisions. That into consideration because that can alter your due date by however many days short or long your cycle is. So you need to go convince them that you have a 33-day cycle. You can be like, oh, wait a minute. I forgot. My cycle's actually 37 days. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Trisha, we made it to season four. Season Whatever that four. Means. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing considering we do a podcast every single week. <sighs> Here we are. And the time has flown by, I must say. Well, yeah, we're busy. We're busy, busy women. I wanted to start by sharing a message a woman just sent us on Instagram. All right. I don't know if you've had a chance to see this yet. It is a woman from Oregon and she says, hi, ladies. I just need a place to vent a moment since I don't have anywhere else to turn. I just left my 36 week appointment where my OB has made me feel like garbage for declining interventions and certain tests. He would not accept my response of no. And when my husband later asked about what we can expect when we go to the hospital in labor, the doctor proceeded to say that any choices and choosing to have a natural labor or any choice to decline Pitocin accounts for 30% of maternal deaths. Did you hear that? Any choice related to having a natural labor and declining Pitocin accounts for 30% of maternal deaths. Is this a true statement? I'm feeling so devastated at the moment for his lack of respect of my decisions and like a horrible soon-to-be mother for having had my own thoughts about how I want my labor to go. That's it. Well, I guess we should start off by saying that that is definitely not true. I don't know where he is pulling that information from, but to say that a natural birth accounts for 30% of maternal deaths, what, I mean, what is he even talking about? Well, I don't think he's talking about anything. I honestly think that providers like this lack the ethics to, first of all, I don't. I think they lack the concern to do any research, but I think they lack the ethics to have a real conversation with someone. And they're just truly, I think he's just making up numbers. I had a mom in a hospital once after a natural birth, her partner was not even present. She had a great birth and she brought her own oral vitamin K that she obtained from a naturopathic doctor. And the on-call pediatrician came in and said, you know, 11% of babies die when they don't do the Pitocin, uh, when they don't do the vitamin K injection. And That's of, a lie. Of course it is. And I ended up researching it and publishing something on it because I was, I was so worked up about it. Um, it was just an outrageous lie and um, it's very upsetting, but it feels real. And the thing that I wish more of these 
doctors understood when they do this is the part where she said, now I feel like a terrible soon to be mother. What an injustice to leave her feeling like she's inadequate or an irresponsible mother only because he has his conflicts of interest and his own motives that have nothing to do with her or, or her intentions. And he's giving her such bad information that the only thing she can extrapolate from it is what a bad mother to be willing to risk her life and her baby's life. But we all know, as especially after our, our conversations with Rachel Reed, like in episode 182, um, you know, she's on track, all things equal for a much safer outcome if she is opting for a natural birth, especially by declining Pitocin if she has a physiologic birth. So it's a great injustice, very upsetting. So needless to say, I posted a story on Instagram to see if there are any better providers in that area. And we immediately got four responses, which I shared with her right away. So hopefully she can go find someone better. Well, and also for this mother and any mother listening, when a provider makes you feel that way, I don't care how good of a provider you think they are or what their reputation is around. But if you walk away feeling like a lesser mother, then you are in the wrong place. True. That's a red flag we haven't quite talked about, but that is true. It just means you're in the wrong relationship if you're not feeling good about yourself, really. <laughs> We're ready to start our questions then, right? We are ready to start season four Q&A, the first Q&A of the year. Let me just... This, uh... this month, we didn't get any from anyone who wanted to talk about relational stuff, um, postpartum emotions and... Sometimes that's we get actually, a bunch of those in one month. It's rare. That's very surprising, especially yeah. after the holidays. Yeah, it's true. A whole lot of that. I think they, I think that they forget that's an option, uh, and all questions are legit here. So, if you have any story you want to share, any interesting holiday story, even if you don't really have a necessarily have a question related to it, share it with us. Um, we can comment on it. Any question, like bring that up because that's a really your emotional experience is a very significant part of this perinatal phase of your life. So we're here for that. All right. 100%. What do we, what All do right. we have? Here we go. First one. Hi, ladies. My name is Erica. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much for everything that you do as a birth doula and uh, certified midwifery assistant. I really enjoy birth content. And so listening to your show is like a breath of fresh air. Um, so much great information and content and education. So thank you. I did have a question. Uh, with my second child, I did have a relatively quick labor. It was about five hours. Um, and even though the birth and labor itself was beautiful, it was um, very physiological and um, I didn't have any medications. It was just very hands-off. It was truly a home birth at a hospital. Um, and the midwives there and nurses were extremely supportive. However, postpartum, I did have some placenta membranes left behind and did have a postpartum hemorrhage and did eventually need to get a DNC. Um, and so my question is, how could I have prevented that? I truly felt like I did all of the things I could have done. I was doing a lot of things in pregnancy to help tone my uterus. Um, and my labor wasn't one of those one or two hour ones. It was, you know, about five and a half, so not too quick. Um, was there anything you can suggest for my third pregnancy that I can be more vigilant about to make sure, knowing that this already happened to me, that it doesn't happen again? I already planned to do the dates and the, you know, pregnancy tea and the 
uh, prenatal exercises and I was getting chiropractic adjustments and massage and so many things to try to prevent this happening in the first place. And I also know things like Pitocin increase the chances of that happening. I didn't have any of that and still had a postpartum hemorrhage. So if you know any other risk factors or anything else I can do to help prevent it down the road um, or with my future pregnancy, I would love any tips. Thank you so much again for everything that you do. Bye-bye. What do you say? Well, she did say that there was a little bit of um, membranes left behind. So that makes me wonder if the placenta was possibly hurried or rushed in the process of birth. So even just a little bit of the amniotic sac being left behind, it's called trailing membranes. If that is left inside the uterus, that can cause this kind of bleeding. We definitely know that in hospital birth, there is a lot of pressure to get the placenta out very quickly. And so if lack of patience might be the main issue here. The other thing that can happen very easily in hospital birth, and it can happen in home birth too, but it's less likely is that as soon as the baby's born, all the focus is on the baby and there's a lot of excitement, which is of course normal and natural, but the mom really needs to stay in her birth zone because if she sort of jumps out of that space and loses her focus on that, then it's harder for the uterus to do its job of contracting effectively after birth. And if the uterus doesn't effectively contract after birth and the placenta doesn't shear off the side of the uterine wall easily, you can have retained placenta. So we want the uterus to contract effectively, as effectively as possible so that the placenta can make the easiest birth possible. We just recently talked about this on the podcast about how cord traction makes it far more likely to a wo- for a woman to suffer postpartum hemorrhage because of the possibility of retained placenta. Well, that's not what that's not actually what uh, the active management of third stage says that cord traction is part of that whole process of the pitocin, the cord traction, the active management of third stage. But that's really questionable research that says that the active management of third stage and low risk physiologic birth is safer. It does appear to be safer in medical births. Right. Right. And we want to just explain why, because if the body isn't having a physiologic experience from beginning to end, then the body is not going to respond physiologically to expelling the placenta as easily as it will if it is a totally physiologic experience. So if you start on Pitocin or get Pitocin or even an epidural during your birth, then it does make more sense to have Pitocin in the third stage of labor. Um, But still cord traction, I mean, taking out the placenta before it's ready, that really is risky. If it depends on how much attraction you put on the cord and if the placenta has actually separated or not, if you're pulling on it and it hasn't separated and you pull too vigorously, of course, but cord traction can also just mean assisting the birth of the already, the already separated placenta. But another thing to consider is uh, the health of the mother throughout pregnancy is really important. Um, If the blood volume doesn't expand properly in pregnancy and you go into birth anemic, you're much more likely to hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. So it's important to make sure that you um, are getting enough iron throughout pregnancy. Best to get it through food rather than a prenatal supplement. The other thing too is that, you know, assessment of postpartum hemorrhage is highly variable. So what's, there's a, you know, there's sort of this 
defined number that we say constitutes a postpartum hemorrhage after birth, first of all, providers are really all over the board in assessing that, just like we are assessing fundal height or cervical exams or ultrasound for uh, estimated fetal weight. You know, there's a lot of variation. So did she really hemorrhage? Was it just called a hemorrhage? Who knows? What if it, what if it had been? So you have to make sure that you're well hydrated throughout labor. So if you do decline an IV, which you guys, if you're regular listeners, you know that we recommend that you have to be eating and drinking throughout labor. Or if you have a really long labor, which she didn't, but in the case of a long labor, if you're not eating, if your body gets low on energy, that could also make it uh, difficult for the uterus to contract after birth. So maybe having something to eat or drink immediately after the baby's born, um, that can be helpful. and. Just, you know, get that baby skin to skin and and take in the smell of your baby. That's a really strong trigger for oxytocin and and getting the uterus to contract. And also, we just have to say that, unfortunately, postpartum hemorrhage is not entirely avoidable. This, This woman did all the right things. She did everything to stack the odds in her favor. But if she did, in fact, have a hemorrhage, then we can't make that a zero possibility. In episode 134, that was our deep dive on hemorrhage and Pitocin, uh, November of 2021, we talked about this. Postpartum hemorrhage, postpartum hemorrhage happens uh, between 1% and 6% of births. Unfortunately, I don't think we have the difference between physiologic and medicated births there. I don't know if that data is available, but the consensus is that it's at around 3%. I don't think there's any totally escaping that. Um, but in three weeks, exactly three weeks from today, we're releasing episode 200, which is our third fabulous episode with Barbara Harper. She's she's such an incredible wealth of knowledge, and she'll be talking all about third stage of labor, like how best to birth the placenta, how exactly it happens physiologically, delayed cord clamping, um, the effect of separating a baby from a mother and postpartum hemorrhage. So we hope you'll all be looking forward to that episode in three weeks, and hopefully we can all pick up some good tips there about reducing that postpartum hemorrhage rate even further, which according to Barbara, we, we certainly can do when we, when we do all the right things that are, that nature and our bodies are really expecting us to do after we give birth. Yep. All right. Hi, my name is Rio. I am a 24 year old first time mom. I am 16 weeks pregnant and we have already hired our doula for our home birth that will be happening hopefully end of May, early June timeframe. Um, I had a question. So we are working with home birth midwives, nurse midwives, and they actually require us to have a doula if we are a first-time mom. Um, I was kind of wondering what the role between the doula and midwife relationship is like, especially in a home birth scenario. I know that doulas can usually fall into more of an advocacy role in a hospital or a birth center um, setting, but I'm kind of wondering what our doula and midwives interactions are going to look like or if our doula really is strictly there just for us during that time. Um, Thank you for taking the time to answer my question. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. 
And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw-cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. So I'm thinking that this probably comes from a very busy home birth midwife practice because I, I mean, it's not common that they require a doula for, and it's only for a first time mom, which to me means that they want somebody who can be there throughout early labor when the midwives may not be able to be there. Yeah. I was wondering about that as well. We've had this question before about, is it necessary to have a doula if you're having a home birth and you have a midwife that you trust? And I am always in favor of it. I think it's a great extra set of hands. Um, it's certainly helpful for the midwives, but truly the doula is there to provide the mother with full time, full on emotional 
support. Whereas the midwife is going to be at times distracted with getting her gear set up. Maybe she has to take another call at some point from somebody else who is in labor. It She's going to be more focused a little. I mean, hopefully she's going to be giving the mother space and different home birth midwives have different styles of practice. But if this midwifery practice is suggesting that you have a doula, then to me, that would indicate that they want that doula there to provide that constant one-on-one emotional support so that they can focus more on the hands-on skills of the midwife. And I would imagine that the midwife will be very welcoming of the doula and very supportive and they'll work together very well. Hi, Trisha and Cynthia. My name is Molly and I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm a big fan of your show and just so grateful for what I've learned from you too and just your wealth of knowledge. Um, I'm a first-time mom with a 10-month-old, but I'm actually calling on behalf of a friend who is currently 32 weeks pregnant, who is also a huge fan of the show. Um, so anyway, a part of my friend's mucus plug came out at 32 weeks, which initially was pretty concerning. But we did some reading, and we saw that sometimes mucus plugs can come out early and then regenerate, so it's not always a cause for concern, but to talk to your provider regardless. Um, so she went to one of her scheduled OB visits, and she talked to her OB, and the OB said that she wasn't concerned, but that also some people say that the mucus plug isn't even real. Um, so we're wondering what your thoughts are on this. We have always heard that losing a mucus plug can be an early sign of labor, as it was for me. I think I lost mine a um, couple days or maybe even a day before my son came. You know, and some women lose it during labor, et cetera, but neither of us have ever heard that it just straight up doesn't exist. So, again, would love to hear your thoughts, and we are just huge fans of the show and so grateful for everything you guys have taught us and empowered us to do. I mean, <laughs> it's real. The mucus plug is real. And it's a real thing. We're not 100% sure that it came out, right? That was what the mother assumed. But if it, if it did come out, I think it would indicate she might, because um, it often can come out in little pieces and no one ever notices it, but it's possible that if something came out, that it was only part of it in the first place, it's possible she was a tiny bit dilated, but it can come out weeks before labor begins. And a woman can dilate a, a bit before labor begins as well for weeks, several centimeters sometimes, but can't it just reform anyway, if she doesn't go into labor? Yes. So the mucus plug is just a bunch of gunk that fills up the... <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I mean, I could go into all the details we of what it's it made the up. We call it the uterine seal in hip number thing, by the way. Yeah. The okay. uterine seal. We don't Gun. like the word plug. I, I mean, the language is just plug. horrible. Whoever came up with all this language. Right know, it's, well, it's not a plug at all. A it's plug. It's like the size a of a seal. fingernail. We need to a just, seal is a much better way to describe it. I know, the it. uterine seal. Then no one knows yeah. what you're talking about, but it feels a lot better to think and to say. Okay. Right, so well, proceed. here's the thing. Your yeah. cervix is like, imagine like a squished donut, like the hole in the donut is squished together. And that little teensy tiny bit of openness in the squished center of the donut has to be filled with something to protect anything from ascending into the uterus. So like, instead of calling it gunk, you could call it glaze, for example. Glaze. <laughs> <laughs> we have a new name, the mucus glaze. <laughs> okay, good. I like we'll it. We'll see if it takes. <laughs> All right. Well, now you're at least always going to imagine your cervix looking like a squished up glazed donut. And that little space is filled with this stuff that forms the mucus plug. And as your cervix 
starts to open, that is released. And yes, most commonly that happens as an early indicator of labor. So at 32 weeks, that's early. And, you know, I think she did the right thing by checking, checking in with her provider, making sure there weren't any additional signs of labor. But in the absence of contractions that are progressive and getting stronger, she's fine. Hi, Tricia and Cynthia. My name is Amber, and I'm from Bend, Oregon. And my question is in regards to adding pumping into my well-established breastfeeding routine. Um, I am planning a work trip, and I will be gone for about four days. My daughter at the time of the trip will be about seven months old, so this is in, in a month's time. Um, she is exclusively, exclusively breastfed. She does not take the bottle. She has tried um, receiving a bottle from my husband and then also from my mother-in-law, who is our nanny. Unfortunately, she will not take it. I have about 20 ounces stored so far. My question is, how do I introduce pumping into my daily routine without disrupting, one, her feeding schedule? She feeds about six to eight times today. Um, and then also, how do I ensure that I do not create a situation where I have an oversupply? Because this late in the breastfeeding game, I don't want that to happen. Um, the detail that I need to know is how can I add a hundred, about approximately 160 ounces to my stash so that she has an adequate supply while I am away. I think I will be gone four days, but it could be five. Um, thank you for all that you do, and I really appreciate uh, you answering my question. A four-day work trip, that's a long stretch of time to be away from your baby. And to provide enough milk for four days in advance of leaving means that you've got to get your body producing this extra, which she said she needed 180 ounces. My recommendation generally is not to store more than about two, maybe three ounces of milk per day so that you don't get into an oversupply. So she would need almost three months of storing milk to store up that much milk. Then when she goes away on her trip, she's going to pump another 180 ounces of milk while she's away and come home and store that milk and have nothing to do with it. So, you know, not that there's nothing you can do. You can use that milk. You can donate it. You can do baby baths with it. You can make food with it. There there are things you can do. But my point is women get themselves into stressful situations where they feel that they have to, and sometimes they really do have to have all this extra milk stored up. And then oftentimes it doesn't even get used. So it's complicated leaving a breastfeeding baby. I guess that's what I'm in a very roundabout long winded way. Well, your answer is two to three ounces a day is all you recommend. And if that's impossible for her because she hasn't been doing that, you're saying she's at risk of oversupply. So what should she know in that case, if she does have to save more? So if you drive up your supply higher than that, which would take adding additional pump sessions after the baby feeds to increase your supply. So to store a couple of ounces per day, you would probably only have to pump after one or two breastfeeds each day and store the extra milk. If she had to drive her production up by eight extra ounces a day to catch up and save up enough milk by this time, that would require a lot of pumping. Anything to be aware of to avoid oversupply or there is no avoiding it. You need the extra milk. You need your body to go into that mode, right? 
Yes, but it, but if you get into oversupply, there's a lot of complications that can come from that. So you don't really want to go down that path. So I say you store two to three ounces a day and you store what you can. And the next best thing is that you overnight your milk wire away. That's the never better thing to do. I thought of that. That's a great idea. I never yeah. thought of that. It's worth it. It's a nuisance. It's expensive, no doubt. It has but to it's be on ice. It. But yeah, that is an option. Good. Right? Because the stress of thinking that's like... You, that's that's usually what I recommend when it comes down to more than about 24 hours away. Okay. Hi, Down to Birth Girls. This is Cassie. Um, I'm calling to leave my Q&A. So my question is related to due dates and the rules or laws around them. I am currently pregnant, 33 weeks, and I live in Florida. So I know every state can have some different regulations. From what I understand, if I go past 42 weeks, then I can legally no longer birth at my birthing center with my midwife. And I have to birth at a hospital, which I'm assuming I will be pushed into being induced. I find this so frustrating because a due date to me is like a best guess. And I don't want to be in a hospital setting where interventions are going to be pushed. So what's the choice now? An at-home free birth because no midwife can legally attend the home birth because in past 42 weeks? I just feel so conflicted on what's best and what to do because in my heart, that's just how I feel. This feels like the system does not support women. I appreciate your time and hope this question helps other women understand and make decisions that support them. Thank you. Well, the system doesn't support women. I'm not saying that in a victimizing way. That's just when, when laws are put in place that limit our options when it comes to our bodies and our births, that has nothing to do with women being able to take total responsibility for their births and make their own decisions. So we don't know the state by state laws, but there are states and it sounds like Florida is one of them where home birth is actually illegal if you, with a midwife, if you go past 42 weeks. So if your state doesn't allow this, this is why some women birth in other states. We've had women go to other states and birth in Airbnbs just to get away from restrictive laws like this. But if you're staying in Florida and that's the situation and you don't want to travel out of state, then you just have to get comfortable with plan B and trust your ability to decline interventions if that's your choice to do so. This is part of what's driving some of the free birth movement. Now, we have known women to work with their midwives to alter their due dates slightly, right? right. We know, <laughs> But birth center midwives are a lot less likely to do that. Okay. True. They have to sort of usually report to the hospital or keep the hospital totally apprised of what's going on. So it's not the little wink, wink that you have between yourself and a home birth midwife in most cases where there's no such oversight. Yes. But also women need to make sure that their original duty that they were given is actually accurate based on their menstrual cycle, because just going by the standard Nagel's rule doesn't apply to everybody's cycle. Some women have longer cycles, some women have shorter cycles, and you have to take that into consideration because that can alter your due date by 
however many days short or long your cycle is. So you need to go convince them that you have a 33-day cycle. Like, oh, wait a minute. I forgot. My cycle's actually 37 days. Every month. Your cycle length is a, is a factor. There's a good chance she'll have the baby before that. It's the stress of thinking about it that's really the problem. Uh, but I think you just have to get comfortable with plan B, whatever that is, so that you can reduce any anxiety and stress and circular thinking around this because that is where the problem comes. It's when you're just not feeling good anymore and you're anxious about your birth, which is what we do not want. You're better off just letting go of it and trusting yourself to manage your hospital birth if it does come to that and just letting go of this concern. It's unless you have other options like going to another state for your birth. All right. Next. Hello. I had a question for you guys kind of regarding some thoughts I'm having about switching midwives. Um, I am currently under the care of a nurse midwife practice here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I I did not have a very good experience with one of their mid nurse midwives in the rotation that they have. It is very likely that she will attend my birth as two of the other midwives are pregnant right now as well. And I just really would not like that energy in my home, in my birth space. And I am definitely thinking about exploring other options. And I've gotten lots of good recommendations for other midwives. The only catch is other midwives do not take insurance. And that is a big reason why I am thinking about using the nurse midwife practice here in my city. Can you kind of give me the pros and cons in your mind about what would be the benefit of switching midwives versus the cost of using the um, nurse midwife practice versus a licensed midwife? Thank you. I think the only thing I the only thing I would say to that is that really just comes down to personal cost benefit to you of having the birth experience that you are most desiring versus risking it, your birth being altered. I mean, if you're not prepared for it and it's not financially feasible, it's just not feasible. But is it worth spending the money on? We would. I think both say yes. I mean, well, she only said that she doesn't totally love her current practice, but she didn't necessarily say she loves the next group that she found. So if you do love the next group that you found and it feels right to you, and if you do have the money to spend on that, and we don't know if you do, if, if you do, then it does seem to us that your intuition should guide you as long as it isn't cost prohibitive. Um, I don't think just running from the current providers to any other group or going into debt is something we would say, go ahead and do. I don't think that would be the right thing for you, but you first have to assess whether you absolutely feel right about the other group before getting into the decision about finances. You just first have to ask yourself if that's the right group. So we, we don't know. I would say it's worth even borrowing money from a family member if if they're willing, if this is so much what you desire and you feel so off with the group that you're in, I think that would be worth it. But you have to, that's why it's so personal. You have to weigh the cost benefit to you and the stress of the financial piece of it. Nobody can make that choice for you. 
I talked about this in my hypnobirthing class yesterday because I ended up leaving my doctor in my first pregnancy and um, I switched to the birthing center and there was a young midwife there who was very cold and I never felt good in her presence. She never made eye contact. She never smiled. She always seemed to be in a bad mood. I absolutely prayed I wouldn't get her. I loved the other midwives and I got her. And it's a little bit of, it was a great life lesson for me now that I'm teaching. But um, the doctor I fired had a far more charming disposition than the midwife I ended up birthing with. But the lesson I learned was that the midwife I ended up birthing with had, she served me perfectly. She wasn't warm. I wished she had been, but she only spoke twice during the birth. She said the perfect words both times. And I realized after my son was born, she wanted the outcome I wanted which wasn't the case with the other doctors. So when we hear a woman saying, I'm not sure I like this midwife, I you definitely shouldn't birth with someone where you don't feel safe. But keep your wits about you as far as, do they have the same birth intention? Are they being negative about my birth plan? Are they saying things to pressure me, intimidate me, misinform me? Or is it just like you just don't love their personality, but you absolutely respect how they practice? So it's just so complicated. And that's why I think the whole thing starts with what your intuition is telling you about who whose hands you belong in for your birth. It's a, it's a, it's something that another person truly can't answer for you. So I, I, I don't know if she hasn't met these other midwives yet, but I if she hasn't, I think she has to start there and listen to her gut. Look how much you had to say about that. Yes, I did. (laughs) All right. Good. All right. So for those who are not with us on Patreon or Apple subscriptions, in which case we have, I believe, seven, six, seven additional questions in the extended version this month. um, It is time for quickies then. It's quickie time. Okay, here we go with January quickies. Does induction with Pitocin actually make labor more painful? Yes. Notoriously, yes. Yes, it does. Next. Should I use a nipple shield or nipple shells for inverted nipples? Well, that's a quickie. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's not a quickie, the answer to that, but they can definitely impede your baby from learning how to latch more deeply. There are some very specific circumstances where they can be helpful, but I would not jump on a nipple uh, shield for inverted nipples. The Lansinol Latch Assist is also a great device for inverted or flat nipples that helps avert them. It's like a little suction cup that pulls them out. Okay, next. Okay, help. My husband just doesn't understand anything I am going through. We know. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yeah. I was, I was out to lunch with my mom today and we were talking about this and she said, I don't think even the most loving, supportive husbands can possibly understand. And I said, they they simply can't just as I didn't understand before I had children. My sister-in-law did. And I, I didn't have the insight into what her lifestyle was like. I couldn't possibly, I would hang out with them and just think she was the same old person as always, but it's a, how can anyone understand? So, um, you're, you can talk to him about it, but you also have to find women who understand it, where you feel like you have a little bit of a more understanding audience. You can also leave the baby with them for a couple of days. And that will scratch this, that will scratch the surface on what your lifestyle is like, because even, even if you do that, which most women don't do, right. It's just a little sampling because even if you do that, 
no one understands the uh, fatigue and waves of potential <laughs> downheartedness, let's say, when you, when it's 24-7, like that reprieve is not coming. So anyone can get through a couple of days, but to feel like, am I ever going to get a break? How many years is it going to be? Um, that is a particularly hard role. And that is usually the role of the mother. Very difficult. So um, we understand. I don't think we have any advice. We just, we absolutely understand. And there wasn't a question anyway, was there? She just yep. said help. <laughs> call in, call in and give us more detail on your situation. We'll answer it in the Q&A with a more lengthy, detailed response. Next. Yeah, or we can do an episode with both you and your husband and we'll just kind of Ooh, talk it out and we go. see what you have to say and see what he has talk to say. Talk it out. Maybe get a nice conversation going. I'm sure that would be helpful. Do I need to wear a belly binder after an external cephalic version? No, no, you don't. Best supplement for mental health that is safe for breastfeeding. Fish oil. Fish oil has been shown um, in high doses of the EPA component of fish oil to be as effective as antidepressants for postpartum mothers. Wow. That's very interesting. Anything Um, else like vitamin D or something? I mean, this, this Kathleen Kendall Tackett has done research on this specifically with fish oil, I would definitely say, keep your vitamin D levels healthy too. get a lot of sunshine exercise as best you can with a new baby. But if I had to pick one thing, fish oil. Well done. That was a just right quickie. (laughs) It was. Should a midwife always carry oxygen to a birth? Yes. In my opinion. Yes. If the baby needs oxygen, the baby needs oxygen. You want to have that. Does your milk supply dip when you are sick? It certainly can. It often does. Um, depends on how sick you are. Some people ride through it pretty easily. The more sick you are, the more impact it has on your milk. Your body's got to decide in that moment what it's going to fight, what it's going to put its energy toward. So if you're super sick, your milk supply may take a bigger hit, but it's usually temporary, um, especially if you have a healthy milk supply. You can come back as soon as you get better. You must also stay hydrated. That's one reason it can also dip is that when we're sick, we tend not to drink as much liquid. Can you ovulate postpartum with no period? You can, but just once. Because once you ovulate, you'll get your period. But you can ovulate before you get your first period. No, so the answer I would have said based on what you just said is no, but keep in mind that you will ovulate two weeks before you get your period. You won't ovulate for a month and another month. You if you're not if you don't have your period and you suspect you've been ovulating. I don't know what she means if she thinks she's just been ovulating all this time for a few months without mm-hmm. getting a period. Right. I mean, that you would say no to that, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I'd say no to that. That might have been her question. Right. How do you push through engorgement while breastfeeding? That's a quickie. I guess the answer to that is that um, engorgement that happens on the third or fourth day is a normal physiologic process that you don't need to push through. You just keep on breastfeeding and you can use some cold compresses for comfort. Engorgement that occurs after any time after that time is more pathological and you should call an IBCLC because there's a underlying cause that needs to be addressed. Last quickie. What is your go-to karaoke song? It's usually something by Alanis Morissette, which really, that's hard to sing. Oh, it's the, it's, 
incredibly hard to sing. And it's so much fun because her songs are so passionate and fun. And what's yours? Country song. Madonna. <laughs> Madonna. You love Madonna. I know. We're, you and I like have such big differences. Hey. Like a virgin. I was a never a Madonna fan. Ugh. I, I know. idolized her. Yeah, Actually, I, opposite for me. I, she, I, yeah, I shouldn't say idolized, but she was we just she talked about one that. person that I would listen to over and over and over again. Yeah. It's a really weird ending to the episode. <laughs> and it wasn't quick. <laughs> no. Now we're just talking. Sorry, guys. They're like, guys, wrap it up. Okay, so. Yeah. So with that said, have a lovely end of January and a lovely beginning of February. And we will see you. We will catch you next week. Good night. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. your thoughts in check i'm gonna try i'm trying damn thoughts they just pop right in it's like an intrusive thought it is (laughs) i did not ask for that one thought i did not ask for that one okay all right moving on